eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So the past few years, there's been a lot of books that have come out about how irrational humans are and that we shouldn't follow our gut or intuition. We shouldn't use heuristics to make decisions quickly. Instead, we should really think things out. My guest today makes the case that while the research that has come out in the past few years um, that these books are based on are useful. They provide us some great insights. They don't really show us how human beings make decisions in the real world. A lot of these experiments that this research has been based on has been done in the lab. My guest today makes the case in the real world, in complex environments, your intuition, your gut, whatever you want to call it, using heuristics can actually be extremely useful and right most of the time. His name is Gary Klein. He is a pioneer in the field of naturalistic decision-making and the author of several books. Uh, one is that I've read recently is uh, Streetlights and Shadows, which is all about decision-making in complex environments, making fast decisions based on your intuition. His most recent book, which I've also read, is called Seeing What Others Don't, and it's all about how we gain insights and the science of gaining new insights. Anyways, today on the podcast, Dr. Klein and I are going to discuss his research in naturalistic decision-making how we can become better decision makers and how we can become more agile decision makers, learning how to use those heuristics and intuition when we need to, and then also knowing how to use that sort of more slow, methodical, analytical decision making in certain situations. And then we also talk about insights, the science of insights, and what we can do to create an environment in our, and around ourselves to have more aha moments. Uh, so a completely fascinating discussion with some actionable things that you can apply today in your life. Uh, it's a. I think you're really going to like this show, so let's do this. Dr. Gary Klein, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you have uh, spent your career dedicated to studying and researching insights, the way we get insights, decision-making in ambiguous situations. You study uh, naturalistic decision-making. How does can you describe briefly what naturalistic decision making is and how it differs from the you know the classical type of decision making we read about in books and in blog posts? Sure. Um, naturalistic decision making studies how people actually make decisions in uh, complex situations and uh, uh, not just decisions but how they make sense of events, how they plan just all a wide range of cognitive activities in 
uh, uh, you could say in the wild, in, 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 in situations that aren't controlled. And so, um, it differs from, from the conventional approaches to decision making, which primarily, um, uh, rely on carefully controlled studies using, um, well-researched, uh, paradigms and tasks and using, uh, populations such as college students that are easily obtained and can be scheduled for an hour or so at a time and can be given tasks that they haven't seen before because you don't want them to, to vary in how familiar they are because that could mess up the results. And so that right away there, there's a problem because we find in natural settings that people rely on their expertise. And so rather than screening it out in order to achieve greater control and precision, we want to see how expertise comes into play. So naturalistic decision-making um, really just is a way of exploring all kinds of cognitive phenomena, but in, uh, in, in field settings and, and, and not, not in under-controlled laboratory conditions. So some of these field studies or field settings have been firefighters, for example, what they do to decide how to approach a house that's on fire. Right. That was uh, one, of, one of my early studies back in the, in the, in the 1980s. And the, the, the belief was that in order to be a good decision maker, you had to generate a, a, a range of different options. And then you had to have some criteria for evaluating the option. And then you figure out which option scored best on the, on the criteria. And we thought that firefighters didn't have enough time to, to set up that kind of a matrix. They probably were just looking at two options rather than a large uh, set. And we wanted to test that out. And we found we thought that was a daring hypothesis, but it turned out to be too cautious a hypothesis. They weren't even comparing two options. They would look at a situation and know what to do and be right most of the time. And so that created all kinds of um, confusion for us because we weren't expecting that. So how could they be so confident and so accurate with the first option? It turned out because it was because they had enough experience and they built up patterns over 10, 15, 20 years. They built up um, a large repertoire of patterns and so they could rely on pattern matching to, to figure out what was going on. But they still had to evaluate the option and so how could you evaluate one option without comparing it to the other? And we looked at our notes and we looked at our interview results and we found the way they evaluated it wasn't by comparing it to other options. It was by imagining how it would play out in that particular context. And so if it worked, then they could make a decision in less than a minute. If it almost worked, they could improve the option. And if they couldn't figure out a way to improve it so that it was adequate, then they would say, forget this, what else can I do? And keep going down their, their their repertoire until they found one that would work. This was a recognitional strategy, and nobody had identified it before because they hadn't studied how people use their experience to make tough decisions under time pressure and uncertainty. So this was the development of the recognition prime decision model, correct? Yes, that's where, that's where it got started, and it came as, as a surprise to us, and we were just, you know, uh, we were trying to, to work with, with experts who were, you know, trained and, 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 and were demonstrably good at making decisions, namely firefighters, to see how they could do it. Because the research suggested that it took at least a, a half hour or so to, to arrange one of these matrices, and if you didn't make a decision like that, you were supposedly 
not making a good or rational choice, and yet they were making good choices, and we didn't know how they did it, so that's what we studied in the wild. Okay. And so you developed this ability, I guess, are patterns what you'd call mental models, or are they something separate and distinct from mental models? So a mental model is a really squishy kind of concept. And for us, a mental model is the story that we tell about how things work. So it reflects the kinds of causes that we think are operating and how those causes interact with each other. And that's our mental model. But we can't usually usually we can't ever articulate what our mental model is, but we certainly have them because somebody with more experience we know has a richer mental model and can reflect a wider variety of causes and and, and be more accurate about what what's happening and what's going to happen. Um, one of the the things I loved about your book was refreshing about it because it seems like over the past ten years or so there's been a lot of books put out there. Um, about how we're human beings are extremely irrational. We make poor decisions and that we shouldn't trust our instincts or intuition. Um, and I guess the upside of irrationality is one of them thinking fast and slow. Um, it, but you kind of, you point out, I think you had, you, you said this a little bit in the introduction that, uh, the problem with the research that these books are based on is that they don't capture actual decision making, right? It's in a lab. Um, are these books out there, I mean, are we as irrational as these books kind of point out that we are, or should we, can we trust our intuition sometimes? Yeah, we're not as irrational as these books are claiming. They're, they're making a bold statement, and, it, and it's exciting, and uh, it's uh, you know, popular, it, it, it's appealing, and the, the researchers are uh, extraordinarily talented at setting up uh controlled laboratory conditions that make their subjects look, uh, look like, like they, they don't know what they're doing and, and look incompetent. Um, but the, the reason that, 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 the reason why, why they set their studies up that way is to show that people will make poor choices because they use heuristics. And the way to demonstrate it is to, to arrange for the heuristics to be um, misleading and to be inappropriate. And, and still people use the heuristics. So the original idea was to, to show that people use heuristics, which are rules of thumb. So simple rules about how to, how to, the strategies for how to get things done. And so they demonstrated that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't use these heuristics. These heuristics, we would be lost without these heuristics. And the researchers haven't shown how valuable these heuristics are and how much we rely on them. They haven't looked at, at the positive value of the heuristics that we learn through experience. And so I have a, 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 a big problem with, with the takeaway message from these kinds of books that you shouldn't trust your, uh, your, your intuition. You, you, should, uh, you, you should ignore your intuition because it's going to get you in trouble. Now, with regards to trust, um, I don't want to encourage anybody to just have blind trust in our instincts, in our, our intuition, because intuition can mislead us. That's why what we found the firefighters doing, they weren't just going with the top option that, that popped into their mind. They would evaluate it by imagining what will happen if I put that that course of action in, into play here. And so they, they were evaluating it, just not in the conventional fashion. So we, we, we shouldn't just blindly trust our intuition, but we also shouldn't blindly trust the results of our analysis, because we see people uh, misleading themselves, fooling themselves, and doing incomplete analyses all the time. So I don't think 
you should blindly trust either intuition or analysis. So have a, a balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, we need to balance the two and rely on the two. Those are two co- different kinds of capabilities that we want to take advantage of. When we have intuitions about things, we shouldn't immediately do it, but we shouldn't ignore the, the intuitions. We should listen to them because they may be uh, telling us things that we other, uh, from our unconscious that we otherwise wouldn't have been aware of. Are, are there ways, I mean, are there situations where, you know, intuition is a better decision making model? Uh, and are there some situations where the more analytical procedural decision making process is better? Uh, there, there are situations that favor one or the other, but I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that question because in most situations, we have to rely on both of them. Okay. And so it's, uh, we don't have to choose, should I be intuitive uh, for this uh, for this uh, situation? Should I be analytical there? We should, we should, we should draw on both of these strengths, and, and we do. Okay. And there was, uh, one of the interesting sections in your first book of uh, in Street Lights and Shadows was that procedures and checklists, um, sort of that methodical analytical process can actually has some, actually has some downsides. Uh, what are those downsides of relying on a procedural base model of decision making? Right. And, and I, I don't want to uh, uh, mislead anyone to, uh, and, and think that, that procedures aren't useful. They're extraordinarily useful. I don't want to take off in, a, in an airplane where the pilots have left their checklists behind and, and, and are just going to um, uh, go by the seat of their pants. Sure. I want them checklists. I, I, there, there are many situations where checklists are extremely valuable and, and situations where the actions are repetitive, the situation is relatively straightforward and you can work out what the procedures are and there's not an awful lot of complexity to contend with. But in many situations, that, that's, not, that's not the case. And, and, and the procedures break down because, um, people aren't, aren't using procedures to, to handle complex situations. They're, they're relying on the patterns and on the experience that they've built up. And, and even when they're, they're trying to rely on procedures, um, they're using their experience to know how to adapt to procedures and which steps to skip and which steps to, to add that maybe weren't in the original, uh, d- design. So people who have experience are, are, even when they're trying to follow procedures, they're, they're modifying the procedures to fit the situation. Procedures themselves aren't going to be, uh, aren't going to let people perform at, a, at a, a, a satisfactory or expert level. Okay. And yeah, I think you mentioned uh, typically amateurs follow procedure more like, and experts are more likely to use that that experience that they've gained to maybe modify the procedure if they've recognized a pattern that would, uh, I don't know, dictate a, a different course of action. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, novices don't have any expertise. And so the, the best thing we can do for them is, is provide them with some ground rules and steps that they can follow. And they're, they're, they're extremely grateful when we do that. Um, but then we, something that sometimes in, in organizations people get carried away and say, let's proceduralize as much as possible, and and that shows that they don't appreciate um, their skilled workers and 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 what their skilled workers have learned and the kinds of expertise that they've gained. 
so I mean, if we if the whole if we want to become more adept with our intuition, we need expertise. But how do we gain expertise? Is it is it just a matter of time and just seeing things over and over again? Um, do we need to be methodical about it, or do we just it just sort of happens, right? We we just encountered so much so many vast amount of experiences that through that process you become an expert. Yeah, so that's what most people rely on is just the slow accumulation of experiences. And it, it sort of works because most of us get better at what we do. So uh, there's nothing wrong with it except it's awfully slow and it's awfully haphazard. And in, uh, in, a, in a lot of situations, we rely on, on feedback, but the feedback isn't always reliable. And so I think there are ways to speed up the growth of expertise to accelerate its development. Uh, one of the ways uh, that is available to most organizations that they, they don't use is to take advantage of the highly experienced workers and, and have them coach uh, the junior ones. And uh, in that way, they, they can recycle the expertise and make it more broadly available. Most organizations don't don't take advantage of of this, and the senior people, the more experienced ones, that you know, you might say maybe they don't want to share their 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 their, their secrets because then they'll be obsolete. But even if you wait, you know, shortly before they retire and say, you know, can you can you help us out now? Um, they resist it. Because their expertise is not based on rules, so they don't they don't have an easy way to describe how they recognize things, how they make perceptual discriminations, what their mental models are. All of these are called tacit knowledge, and these are the basis of expertise. And people don't um, have an easy time of describing it. That's why it's tacit knowledge. And so experts don't do a good a good job of of, of explaining it. Um, however, what we found is that it's possible to take the experts in the organization and sensitize them to their tacit knowledge and make them aware of uh, the skills that they, that they have, that they're not just following rules, and the opportunities that they have for um, bringing things to the attention of their uh, junior colleagues. And so I think you can do a, a, a great, much better job of on-the-job learning than organizations currently do. So I think that's one uh, big area, big way that, that organizations can and leaders can improve the, the skill level of, of the people in their organization. The second way is for the, the learners to, to try to be more um, deliberate about how they improve, about how they work. They, they should be, you know, watching what they're, the, the skilled performers are able to do, and then maybe they should be the ones who, who start prompting the discussion. And I know that's hard for, for somebody who's junior and it, it seems um, a, you know, a, a bit aggressive, but we find that, that, that people who are experts are pretty proud of what they do and appreciate that kind of acknowledgement and that kind of attention. And so by by sort of saying... When you did this, I, that wasn't what I, what I thought you were going to do. Why did you do it? Or what were you noticing? What were you thinking about? So you can have that kind of a dialogue. So I think it's possible to have that kind of a, an arrangement. Uh, we've also, we've also been using, um, a, a method of skill development, 
uh, called a shadow box method, which we've just developed uh, within the last year or two, um, which is uh, to help uh, trainees see the world through the eyes of the experts without the experts being there. And uh, the strategy we have is we present challenging scenarios and people go through the scenarios and then in, in the middle of the scenario they've got to answer questions like rank these options for different courses of action or different goals. And so they rank them and they write down the rationale. But then we, we show them, um, here's what a panel of experts ranked and here's, here's what they were noticing. Here's the rational reasons that they gave so that the trainee gets a chance to compare his or her uh, uh, skills and, and observations with those of the experts. And so the experts don't have to even be in the room, but by capturing all that information up front, the, the trainees and the novices can see how the experts were viewing the situation and, and how that differed from the way they, they had been viewing it. And you actually started a website with this programming, correct? Correct. The website, for anybody who's interested, is www.shadowboxtraining, that's one word, .com. Your book, uh, Streetlights and Shadows, you talk about uh, another method, the pre-mortem. I think a lot of us have heard of the post-mortem, where after, I always did these in law school, after my exams, you would, you'd circle up with your law school buddies, and then you just sort of dissect the exam afterwards and see which mistakes, what problems you might have missed and et cetera. So it's the post-mortem. But the pre-mortem, is this basically you're doing what a post-mortem but before the actual event? Right. And the post-mortem, the concept comes from um, medicine where you uh, have had this kind of a discussion after uh, the patient has died to see what what caused it. And so it's it's a valuable opportunity to learn. So the, the, the physicians learn then the family members can learn why why their loved one has uh, died. And, and if there's something uh, unusual, then you can write it up so the whole community can learn. Everybody benefits uh, except for the patient because the patient is dead. <laughs> so we said, well, why don't we move that up front, uh, like if you're doing a, a, a project, instead of doing a, a post-mortem at the end, which, which you, you may still want to do, why not do a pre-mortem? And the way it works, it's really a form of uh, risk assessment. And now, if, if you have a, a plan, if you have a new program getting started, and you've got the team ready and they're all enthusiastic, and you see what the plan is, and then, then usually at the kickoff meeting or as you're planning it, you'll say, okay, does anybody see any, 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 have any criticism or see any weaknesses? And it's hard to, to say to a, an energetic and enthusiastic group, Here, here's my reservation. And so people tend not to, to respond with the, with the critiques, and they may not even be thinking about any critiques. They're in a mindset of, let's do it, rather than what could go wrong. So we developed this pre-mortem technique, and the way it works is we say, okay, here's the plan, and you're looking in a crystal ball, and it's now four months later, and we've started this project. Oh, gosh, the image in the crystal ball is really ugly. This plan has fallen apart. It's been a disaster. So we know that. The image is, is clear that this has been a disaster. The plan has failed. Now, everybody in the room people on the team and observers, everybody's got two minutes to write down why the plan failed. 
And so you just wait and you give them two minutes to, to write down their reasons. And then you go around the room and compile the reasons. And it's amazing the kinds of things that people pick up because the mindset is different. Instead of the mindset being, yeah, let's get started. We're, we're now, we're enthusiastic. Here there's, there's a mindset. It's not about what, if it'll plan, if it'll fail. We know it has failed. Now use your experience to, to try to uh, uh, identify what went wrong, and people will say the most amazing and uh, prophetic things because they're in a different uh, in a different place. So the exercise seems to work. Uh, we've done some research; it seems to work more effectively than far more effectively than just asking people to do a critique. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. 
See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Interesting. And how do you, I mean, I, I could see this sort of uh, depressing people where they're just like, I don't want to take action on this. How do you avoid that where you, uh, you, know, you get all these problems and it's just so overwhelming that, oh, maybe this thing's not going to work at all. Let's not even try. Is there a balance to it? I mean, how do you end up, how do you take action despite seeing all the problems? Yeah, that, I, we were doing this, pre, using this pre-mortem technique. We were teaching it to uh, to other organizations, but we were using it ourselves. And then some of our staff members started to raise exactly that concern. This, you know, we don't want to be overconfident and over-optimistic, but this is <laughs> this is really uh, reducing our, our, our motivation here. So we added an additional step. And the additional step, I'm glad you asked me about that. The additional step at the end of the pre-mortem is to say, okay, we now have all the reasons people have uh, identified for why this plan failed. Now, let's take another two minutes and everybody write down what he or she personally can do to prevent this outcome from occurring, from prevent, to prevent these reasons from, from biting us. And so now we, we, uh, compile that and we found some ways to improve the plan to make it more rugged. And, uh, and, and that seems to take some of the emotional sting out of the pre-mortem and leave people, uh, enthusiastic, but a bit chastened and maybe not over-optimistic anymore. That's good. Yeah. I guess the over-optimism can, has gotten to us in a lot of trouble and a lot of societal problems. I guess like the mortgage, crisis was a crisis of over optimism <laughs> yes yeah, people are just people are just overconfident in, uh, in in these situations because when you're just getting started you wouldn't start if you didn't think it was going to be a good program and so you're you're looking at all the ways that that, that it's going to uh, succeed and you tend to ignore uh, some of the potential problems and we, and we want to correct them that all right so your your most recent book um, is seeing what others don't. And it's about how we gain insights. And I think most people think of insights as sort of this mystical thing that just happened out of the blue, that, you know, the eureka moment. Uh, and there's nothing really we can do to 
control. There's really no science behind it. But in your book, you make a case that there's actually there's some, some patterns um, to insights. And so what are those main patterns for insights that you've uncovered? Right. So uh, we can, I conducted a, a, a study of uh, 120 examples of insights. And um, previously, for the last few decades, there have been a number of researchers conducting studies of, of insight, but they've conducted it in laboratory settings. And it's hard to schedule an insight. It's hard to say, let's, you know, you're, you're going to have an insight at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon. But they, the paradigms that, that they use presented um, people with an impasse problem where people are likely to be making um, inappropriate assumptions that trap them. And so the problem seems unsolvable and people wrestle with it. And then some of them, not all of them, but some of them realize, wait a second, here's the trap. And they, they discover... The, the belief that's trapping them, the unnecessary assumption they're making, and then they they, they escape the uh, they, they get around the impasse. So we call that uh, an impasse path. And when I did my uh, my review as a, a naturalistic decision researcher, I found that some of the cases fit that category, but not too many. That was actually one of the smallest categories I found. The, the most common category was a connection uh, uh, pathway that people use where you have knowledge that you've already gathered and then you're exposed to some additional knowledge and you put that together with what you have and now you have a much richer mental model, a much richer idea, and it's sort of uh, an explosive aha experience of, wow, now I see what I can do that I didn't realize before. And so that's the second path, and, and it was the most common. And we also found a third path that we hadn't seen discussed in the literature that we, we call a contradiction path. So the connection path is how you put things together. The contradiction path is when you realize that these things don't fit together, that there's a, a disconnect here. And you have time for a short example? Sure. Um, so uh, this came from one of the interviews we had done in a project where we studied police officers. So this, this uh, relatively, this a highly experienced police officer is riding in his car, and he's got uh, a much less experienced officer next to him. And they're, they're at a stoplight, and they're just waiting for the light to turn. And then the, the, the younger officer looks looks up and he says, "Huh?" Because the driver of the car ahead, which is a brand new BMW, and the, he sees the driver take a drag on a cigarette and then flip the ashes. He says, what? Because nobody who's driving a new BMW is just going to flip the ashes onto the upholstery into the car. So if you borrowed the car from somebody, you wouldn't do that to somebody else's car. So this doesn't make any sense at all. So they pulled the the car over, and as you can imagine, it was a stolen car. Hmm. And so the insight, which he got immediately, was these pieces don't fit together. Something is wrong. We need to investigate. So this was a contradiction path. It was a, a third path that we identified. So it turns out that there's several different pathways to gaining insight, not just um, working around impasses and, and, and giving up 
unnecessary assumptions. When you talk about some of the, you, in the book, you talk about things that keep us from gaining insights. And you talk about uh, goals could possibly get in the way of insights. How could goals get in the way of gaining new insights? Because goals are supposed to be great, right? We're supposed to have goals and accomplish them and feel good about ourselves. Yeah, this happens all the time. And the, 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 the problem with goals, I mean, who could be against setting goals? And, I, and, and we certainly should set goals. The trouble is when we fixate on these goals. Now, if, if, the, if the project is clear and, and the goals can be uh, identified nicely up front and, and the situation isn't going to change, then, yeah, you, you, you try to reach your goal. Um, the trouble is, in many, many cases, we're, we're, we're approaching um, ill what's called wicked problems and ill-defined goals that can't be defined up front and, and, and don't have any clear definition. Like, for example, um, our goal is to you know, find a solution for global warming. What's the right answer? Well, there isn't a right answer. Or our goal is to reduce the cost of, 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 uh, of, of health care. I mean, we all want to do that. What's the right answer? There's not a right answer. So these kinds of goals, and, and many uh, smaller ones on a personal level, are examples of, of wicked problems. And the goals that we start out with um, turn out to be fairly shallow. The more we wrestle with the problem, the more we're going to discover. The trap here is if we stay locked into our, origin, our initial idea of what the goal is, we're not going to, um, not going to improve. We're not going to shift to a more sophisticated goal. And we have people, especially in organizations, who are given tasks and, and, and they're told, here's the goal, and they're afraid to make any kind of a change. And so they lock into their initial goal. They fixate on their initial goal. And their initial goal is simply inadequate and too shallow, and they, they do a mediocre job. So for that reason, we advocate something that we've called management, not management by objectives, but management by discovery, to have people try to identify their goal up front, but then um, be sensitive to what they've learned about the goal as they go along so that they can replace their initial goal with a, a more valuable one and a more powerful one. Fascinating. Um, another part in your book, and and seeing what others don't, uh, you talk about the role of serendipity in insights and making new connections. And I'm curious. There's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, we, we're seeing this in our own lives right now with companies like Amazon and Netflix that have algorithms or programs that allow smart discovery, where you find things that are related to your interest already. And uh, you don't have to go to the books. You know, there's no more browsing in the bookstore where you just stumble upon a book you never would have found uh, if you weren't just browsing randomly. Are those sort of algorithms going to get in the way of insights or possibly get in the way of insights? I think so. Uh, and and I'm, I certainly appreciate the power of big data. And we have access to... Uh, uh, an amazing amount of, of data that we, we never could have imagined before, different kinds of data that we can obtain very easily. And so there's 
more data than, than, than we can possibly handle. So we want to have algorithms that will do the job of sorting through it. And these algorithms can do and, and do a wonderful job of, of finding patterns and um, of being able to uh, track trends and, 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 and things like that. The problem uh, with, uh, with a big data approach, the problem is that it um, locks us in to what, was, what the, the original programmers knew and what their beliefs were and what their dimensions were. Uh, and so the algorithms reflect what people already knew. And so you can use these programs to follow historical trends, which is very powerful. But what happens if you get into a situation that has changed in some subtle but really important ways and so the historical trends don't apply anymore? And so um, what we see happening in organizations is people giving up their own control to the, uh, to, to the analytic approaches and relying on that. And so their expertise is starting to diminish as they cede control to the programs and the programs which are, are very good at um, uh, crunching uh, the data using what we already know are not as, as always, uh, are usually not as good at picking up the departures from, from the previous trends and being able to notice, um, that the world has shifted in some small, subtle but significant ways that have to be taken into account. And so with, without somebody watching what's happening, um, the, the programs can, can mislead us if, if, if we're not careful. And, and we're gonna, if we're not, and, and if we're not mindful of this, we're gonna lose our capability to provide an, an oversight for these kinds of programs and just become more and more dependent on that. And, and, and I'm seeing that happen in, in too many situations. Sure. I mean, people would say in the stock market, you might be seeing that, um, in other areas of, uh, economic life as well. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the trick would be use these as a tool, but don't make them a crutch. Right. For, for people who, who are, you know, one of, of the leaders, um, there, there, there's no way to evade their own responsibility for, uh, developing their own expertise, building their own mental model, or making sure that the people on their team continue to, to develop expertise so that they can work more effectively as teams. What can, uh, individuals do to cultivate insights are there things are there practices or routines or something of that nature that we can put in our put into place in our everyday lives where in basically make it a more fertile environment for insights um i've wondered about that ever since i started working on the book and it's only in, in the last uh, few months that i've come up with something and i haven't tested it so i, I, I may be wrong but it's it's an idea that i'm I'm playing around with now. And the idea is about um, having people cultivate an active mindset, an active stance. I'm calling it an insight stance or an instance um, about uh, things that happen around us. And part of that, me, it will involve um, noticing our insights, our large ones, but even our small ones. 
we tend to dwell on our mistakes, or a lot of us do. I know I do. You know, I, I should have done this, or I should have realized that, and and and, and that that's helpful. But we should also uh, celebrate the insights when we have, when we um, notice contradictions that other people weren't spotting, or when we make connections that other people hadn't saw, uh, seen, or when we um, realize what, what what's wrong with 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 one of our uh, beliefs or mental models and improve it. And so we should be celebrating these and and uh, appreciating how we're continuing to, uh, to to build expertise. So that's part of it, is to be able to uh, uh, just become more sensitive to insights that we have and to be more alert to insights that we might have. Uh, related to that is trying to just encourage people's curiosity uh, so that in if you see a coincidence, you don't just dismiss it. Oh, it's just a coincidence. Um, maybe it is, but maybe it deserves a second or two to, to think, I wonder, could there be something here that is worth my attention? Or if you had, get, uh, receive a piece of, of, of information that contradicts what, what you uh, believe, instead of saying, well, that's just an anomaly. I don't have to pay attention to it. Most of the time you don't. But maybe give it a few seconds and say, if, if this was actually a, 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 an accurate data point, what, what could it be telling me? Uh, and so we, we can try to be more deliberate and more mindful about um, becoming open. But it's not simply becoming open. That sounds too passive. It's about being curious about coincidences and connections and anomalies and things like that rather than just doing our work in a mindless fashion. We can also... Um, try to uh, be more alert when we're working with, with a team, be more alert to um, to conflicts and confusions. And I'll give you an example there. Sure. Uh, I was putting on a workshop and it was to a bunch of uh, executives and we were talking about expressing intent and uh, how important it is and how hard it is. And one of the uh, executives said, I know just what you mean. I just had a situation uh, last couple of days. I, I I gave one of my subordinates a job to do. I told them, here's what I want. I explained what I wanted. And my deputy was there. So my deputy heard me. Off he went. And then we brought him back a day or two later to see how he was doing. And he was going off in the wrong direction. And he just totally missed the boat. And I said, no, no, that's not what, what I want again. Here's what I want. And he said, okay, I'm trying to do better. And off he went. And I turned to my deputy and I said, didn't I explain it? And he said, yeah, you did. You just, you just missed it. And so he was resonating to what I was saying. But that didn't, I, that didn't feel right to me. So I asked him, when he came back and he had missed the boat, did you think about asking him, what did you think I wanted? And, 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 and the man said, uh, no, I, I, I didn't. Why would I do that? And, and I, and I thought, of course that's what you would want to do. If somebody has misunderstood your directions, maybe there's a flaw in that person's mental model and this is a chance for, for you to discover it with him. Or maybe your description wasn't as clear as you thought. And this is an opportunity for you to get feedback about 
how people are understanding your directions, and maybe you can do a better job, there's all kinds of opportunities when people are confused or having a conflict or uh, things like that that we would just as soon sweep under the rug. And instead of sweeping under the rug, we can say, this is an opportunity to gather some insights. So there's ways of, of, of doing, of uh, having a, an insight stance individually and also in an organization. Fascinating. Well, Gary, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, the, um, I've, I've given the, the website for www.shadowboxtraining.com. There's another website that we have, www.macrocognition, that's all one word, macrocognition.com. Or they can uh, look up my work on Amazon or go into a bookstore. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my book, Seeing What Others Don't, The Remarkable Ways uh, People Gain Insights, or Street Lights and Shadows, Searching for the Keys to Adaptive Decision Making. Those are my two most recent books. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Gary Klein, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate the conversation. Our guest today was Dr. Gary Klein. He is a research psychologist specializing in naturalistic decision-making. Make sure to check out his books on Amazon.com, Streetlights and Shadows. Completely fascinating. If you enjoyed our articles on situational awareness or the OODA loop, this book will flesh out some of the concepts we discussed in those articles. Also, check out his latest book, uh, Seeing What Others Don't, all about the science of insight. Really fascinating. And you'll also have some takeaways on how you can have more insights in your own life or create an environment for insights. Make sure you also follow Gary on Twitter. He's always posting interesting research. His Twitter handle is KLE Insight at KLE Insight. And then you can visit his websites to learn more information about his work, macrocognition.com and shadowboxtraining.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and have gotten something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast and give us a review. I'd really appreciate that. And also, please recommend us to your friends. That's the best compliment you could give us. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.